Okay, welcome back to another episode of Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Uh, with me today, as we have for every Tuesday, although I guess it's going to come out on a Wednesday uh, broadcast, is my friend Hugo Lindgren. Uh, Hugo, welcome uh, back to the podcast. Thank you, Bradley. Uh, it's funny, it's the day after a holiday, and there it's actually kind of like a pretty intense news environment. There's just like a lot of stuff going on, like kind of some unusual things. Um, I guess we have a lot of good things to talk about. I think it's in part because like the world moves so fast right now. And I think technology broke down so many walls that this notion of like, oh, we'll all just disappear at noon on Fridays or in August. Like I just don't think the world works like that anymore. It's interesting. I I agree. I don't think it does either. But then I was I was reading something I couldn't even understand it exactly, but about a, a security breach at Microsoft, and the analysis was well, they did the typical Friday afternoon you know news dump, um, and it, it worked. Like no one cared about this like rather significant breach at Microsoft. The the media just sort of missed it, and I was like, really, that still works. I guess you know you still might have more of the B team of reporters in on Friday night than on uh, Wednesday morning. But yeah, I, th- I think it's harder. Or just as a more real world example, we're looking at raising the Series A for for a portfolio company of ours, and we debated the other day. You know, can you go in August? And the norm is no, you won't, uh, because no one's around. Everyone's on vacation. It'll be impossible to get anything done. And I think that's just not how things work anymore. I think pe- people are working. People are around. Maybe they're not at their desk at the office, but but they're certainly somewhere where they can do a Zoom, look at a deck, take a meeting. Um, so you're going to do it in August? Well, I don't know if we'll be ready to on the tech side, but I won't be deterred from doing it in August. If you're already ready to go. Right. All right. Well, so so we, uh, I'll just list some of the things we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about DD, the the um, uh, the ride hailing. Uh, service in China that has, I was alarmed to discover, has 450 million users, um, which I then I had to look up and I was like, what, is that half the population of China? I always thought the uh, population of China at a billion in my mind, but in fact, it's closer to 1.4 billion. So uh, 450 million users still comes out to, you know, about a third of the country, which is pretty, pretty substantial. Um, more than the entire population of the U.S. Right, it, just for one for one company. Yeah, we're going to talk about uh, Teneo, um, the the sort of political consulting PR firm uh, that's had a ra- rather spectacular kind of implosion. Um, we're going to talk about I think one of your a subject that's very near and dear to your heart. Um, we're going to talk about competitive eating um, and this rather astonishing yeah. record. That's, that's the whole point of this podcast was just just to work our way into the IFOC. <laughs> Wait, the what? International Federation of Competitive Eating. I like how you just throw an acronym out there like that. Like that's something we'd all know what it is. I think most people know that one. You think so? Yeah. Like, <laughs> like if you polled it, like seventy percent of people could could tell you what it stands for. Wow, I'm going to go that seventy percent. You say? Yeah, I mean, I th- obviously it's probably more like 96 percent during the hot dog eating contest time. <laughs> but you know, even just like random points of the year where it's just mayonnaise eating or muscles eating or langoustines or crackers or whatever it is. Yeah, 70%. May, maybe if people are really distracted, it tips down to 65. All right. Well, we, I, I'm going to have to ask you more about this later. And then we're going to talk about the sort of Biden, uh, not just the infrastructure bill, but the whole, because I, I guess they're proceeding on two tracks now. There's 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 this sort of soft bill and the hard bill. Um, and uh, and 
it, it seems like it's a kind of slow motion train wreck at the moment, and we're interested to hear your thoughts on that. But let's start at the top with Didi. Um, it's the most fast moving of all these situations. Why don't you just, for, for those who maybe took the, the weekend off in terms of news consumption, why don't you just sort of explain what's going on as best you understand it, and then we'll talk about it for a second. Yeah. So, so Didi, as Hugo said, is a giant ride-hailing company based in China. They're Uber for China, but they've got 450 million users in China alone, which is greater than the entire U.S. population. So it is a very big company with a lot of scale. Uh, they went public last week here in the U.S., which, which had been the plan for a long time. Uh, apparently, Chinese regulators said to them, hey, you might want to hold off on that. We have some concerns. DD decided not to hold off and they moved forward and China responded by removing them from the app store in China completely, uh, which basically makes you inoperable. So a pretty big message being sent both by DD to China and that, hey, we're going to do what we want to do. And then a much bigger one being sent back in response saying, no, you're not. Um, and look, while I think this whole DD thing is slightly, it's a new context of Chinese tech companies going public and then facing government restrictions. It's a pretty old story, right? Which is China exerts strict control over all of their commerce. If they feel like they're not being paid sufficient deference or attention or, or taxes or whatever else, they will slip in, step in and slow it down. You have kind of the phenomenon of, of tech CEOs being seen as more independent, free-spirited and innovative. And so kind of the nature of a, of a tech founder contrast even more with kind of centralized government and government controlled economic policy. Um, but fundamentally, it's the same thing as always, which is you have a government that wants to exert a lot of control of what happens in the market and what happens in society. Um, and when any company gets a little too big for their riches, they're, they're going to pay the price for that. So there's almost a kind of game theory at, at work here with, with Didi, like going ahead with the IPO, even given the, the, the warning, um, if that had been something you had been asked about in advance, obviously somewhat easy knowing the outcome now, but do you think you would have told them to hold off? And, and I mean, The thing is this, obviously they gamed the whole thing out, right? And they, it wasn't like it didn't occur to them that they couldn't be pulled from the app store in China. Right. Uh, and yet they chose to do so anyway. They took that risk. And it may be that they were so far along on the IPO process that they just felt like they were better off being a publicly listed company and dealing with whatever issues they're going to have with the Chinese government rather than hoping to resolve those and waiting for permission to be able to do your IPO. So I, I don't know that it was the wrong call, but I think you've got this, you know, in the U.S., we've got this push and pull between tech founders and innovators who want to kind of move fast and break things and accumulate a lot of power. The Zuckerbergs, the Bezoses, uh, the, you know, the Apples and Microsofts of the world. And uh, on the flip side, you've got regulators at the FTC, legislators, others who worry about monopolistic power or some other feature of these companies that they don't like, and then they look to put in uh, controls. In reality, it's a pretty loose relationship and pretty collegial um, compared to what you have in China, where you have companies that want to be able to operate on the principles of a free market and a free economy, and yet are still at the end of the day subject to the Chinese government. So I think they're always going to have this tension, right? And it's it's always going to be tough. And if you are a retail investor in the U.S. looking to invest in a Chinese tech company that has gone public, on one hand, sure, the, the market is massive and there probably are monopolistic advantages built in if the company you've invested in works well with the Chinese government. Um, but they're always going to be you know, subject to these types of discipline and controls 
uh, from the government. And every time that happens, the share price is going to go down. And you've just got to believe in the company enough to know that's going to happen every once in a while. And you're willing to take those hits and, and keep going. How much do you know about Didi as a company? Is it is it pretty? You mentioned the Uber for China. Is that really all it is? I mean, uh, does it have any um, distinctive elements besides uh, what we know of, like Uber and Lyft? I mean, for what I know, it's it's really just ride sharing. Um, and uh, I don't know if they've gotten into some of the other businesses that Uber's gotten into. You know, it's probably a little more maybe like Lyft, and that Lyft is strictly a ride sharing company and does very little else. Well, they um, do city bikes, Lyft. Yeah, they've got a little bit of other micro mobility, but then right. they're not food delivery or autonomous trucking or some of the big, you know, flying cars or anything like that, like in the, in the way that Uber is or has been involved in some of those different sectors. So, but look, just given the size of the Chinese market, um, if you're Uber for China, uh, that's a pretty big business. And then keep in mind, on one hand, you have to deal with the heavy hand of the government and them being upset about whatever they're upset about at the moment. On the other hand, one of the reasons why Uber and Lyft don't make money on ride sharing is because of each other, right? They're constantly locked in this battle to subsidize customers and subsidize drivers. And as a result, uh, they can't turn a profit. If there's just one predominant ride sharing company and they have a monopoly and that monopoly is locked in and protected by the government itself, it's potentially a very profitable business. So, you know, even though Didi obviously has its issues at the moment with the Chinese regul, you know, regulators and Chinese government, um, they're still positioned to be a very successful company. I was just talking to a friend, and not to not to change the subject too much, but I was talking to a friend who, who was a house guest this weekend who had just been in Los Angeles, and he said, in his experience, like Uber is essentially broken in Los Angeles. I mean, it, it you know, it used to be. You know, you'd wait five minutes for a car, two minutes, whatever, no time at all. And now it's like half hour, you know, like like weird, like just, you know, they're having so much problem with manpower that um, it just doesn't function at the, anywhere near the level it used to. Yeah. I mean, look, that's um, fundamentally uh, at the end of the day, if the wait times get long enough, people will, will, will go back to taxi. I mean, one of the reasons that people shifted to Uber was either the randomness of hailing a cab on the street or calling for a car service and being told it's going to be a half an hour, an hour, whatever it is. Um, look, I think that, that COVID obviously took a lot of drivers off of the Uber and Lyft platforms that reduced supply. And it sounds like the just like the tight labor market has made it higher, harder to hire people for all kinds of different jobs across the U.S. That applies to ride sharing um, in, in California, too. I, I will say... That I use Uber, you know, reasonably frequently here in New York. I'd say it's it's not thirty minutes. Maybe it's ten minutes instead of two minutes, right. um, but it's not quite quite that bad. I'll, I'll be in LA uh, in a little bit, uh, so and, and I'm not planning on renting a car, so I'll, I'll be able to report on this firsthand in a couple of weeks. That's exciting. Well, I we can't wait for that. So you'll have some news for the Firewall podcast. Yeah, people do an emergency broadcast session just for me to say like 7.8 minute average wait time or, you know, 14.3. <laughs> right. I think you should just live tweet all of your wait times. Just so we have yeah, we have your friend on and he and I can debate it uh, in real time. So I have one more little DD question that, that I'm just sort of curious about. But as a political strategist, like how do you even contemplate dealing with something like the Chinese government? Is it just like, kind of like beyond comprehension. Yeah, you don't. So like when I think about the work that we do, it is all premised on the rule of law. It is all premised on the notion that you have 
relatively free and fair elections that you can impact and your ability to impact those free and fair elections is what makes politicians either do things or not do things, right? Um, it, we work on a basic assumption that 99% of, of elected officials are desperately insecure, self-loathing people. That can't live <laughs> the validation of I love how you throw in self-loathing. I, I think it just helps really round it out. I mean, it's, it's a fuller picture. And, and so we are working on the assumption that in order to fill a hole that exists in their psyche, they've got to be in office and they will ultimately be whatever they need to be to stay in office, whether it's moving left or right or center or anything else. And so if you can reduce their ability to remain in office, um, you can get them to do what you want. Um, in China, the fundamental precept doesn't work because uh, you can't necessarily get someone out of office, right? They don't have free and fair elections. Um, and so as a result, uh, I think our entire strategy doesn't work for a place like that. Kind of like when, when Billy Bean did Moneyball, he had this famous quote saying, my shit doesn't work in the playoffs because it was just too randomized for right. the kind of he put in so play. So it doesn't work in China? It doesn't work in China, yeah. No Beijing office for Tusk Strategies. Um, all right, let's, let's, uh, let's move on to Taneo. Um, I, I would, I would, first of all, like, obviously their, their business overlaps with yours in some ways, I suppose. Yeah. Um, tell me about what, what you know of the company and, and how you see it from, from the vantage of, of, of your business. I mean, look, I think overall, not counting the last few weeks, it's been a success story in that. You had two very, very ambitious founders in Doug Band and Declan Kelly, who really wanted to make a tremendous amount of money in a very short period of time. They had lots of good political relationships. Doug is is most known for being kind of Bill Clinton's body man from Clinton leaving office. You say body man or bag man or like what? People use different terms, but Doug was the, his top advisor and aide. It's more than that. Bag man is kind of a demeaning term. Right. Doug was his top, his top strategist, aide. Uh, confidant, everything for a good 15, 10 to fifteen year period. So, um, so I, th- I think it's more than uh, than, than Bagman. Um, and Doug uh, left Clinton World somewhat in uh, controversy in that he was feuding with Chelsea Clinton. Um, Doug and Declan, who was a longtime kind of PR executive, uh, started Taneo together, and the idea is that they would provide. Um, really high-level advice to Fortune 100 CEOs uh, and help them with PR and government relations and investor relations uh, and all kinds of other issues. And look, they built a company that was valued not that many years later at $700 million for a consulting firm that, you know, its only assets are basically month-to-month contracts. So, you know, what they built is really impressive. You know, hundreds, maybe now thousands of employees. Um, it's average, 1,200 employees in the, yeah, in the thing. 1,200 average retainer. I think I read of like a quarter of a million dollars a month. Um, that's higher than any firm that, that I'm aware of. So from a business standpoint, you know, they've built something uh, really impressive. Now, whether or not uh, their clients feel like they're getting that kind of value, I don't know. Um you know, you hear clients who are happy with their experience. You hear clients who are unhappy with their experience. Um, now both of the founders are out. Doug had a uh, Vanity Fair piece that ran, I think, sometime last year uh, in which he really went after the Clintons and Chelsea Clinton specifically. And that drew a lot of negative attention, which then led to him stepping down from Taneo. 
uh, Declan was accused recently of being very drunk at a uh, nonprofit event in Los Angeles and touching people inappropriately. Um, that story was under wraps for a while. I'd heard about it probably, you know, six, seven weeks ago, and it, it just came out in the last week or two, uh, but then caused him to have to uh, resign from Taneo as well. So the original two founders are not there. They had a third co-founder who's now uh, nominally in charge. But look, I think they're sort of laughing all the way to the bank. If you're Doug and Declan, you each made nine figures on a business where all you're really doing is telling other people uh, what to do all day. Is this, if, if you had to guess, is this the kind of uh, Enron of PR political consulting, like a huge house of cards that's going to fall down? Yeah. Look, Enron was entirely based on a falsehood, right? Taneo provides services to their clients, whether or not those services are worth $250,000 a month or more, um, is up for debate. Uh, and it may be that because so many of their clients were the CEOs directly who Declan advised personally, that um, now when, when Declan's no longer there, the knives will come out and they'll, they'll lose some of those contracts. But no, I mean, they, they, I don't know anyone that said that they hired Taneo, you know, sent the money and never heard from them again. Um, <laughs> it's just a question of without the vision of the two co-founders uh, and their political relationships, it, you know, can they still charge those kinds of fees and, and could the valuation that they had be upheld? It's just weird, right, where you have guys who are supposed to sort of have their finger on the pulse of like how politics works and how sort of public relations works. And they have these blow ups that are directly in their line of expertise. Right. So like, like for the sake of an article in Vanity Fair, Doug Band trashes his his the, the thing that gives him value in the world and then has to has to leave his company. And then this guy, Declan, I mean, it, you know, and then there was obviously his misconduct at this at this party. But there's also like, you know, some of the stories about stuff that's been going on at the company, these absurd kind of misbehaviors by the staff. It just feels like like what the hell were they doing? Yeah, look, it, it, it always feels that way when someone who's supposed to be an expert in, in PR and crisis communications ends up in their own public crisis. With that said, you know, the, they're human, right? Which means um, that they are subject to all of the same issues that we all are in terms of emotion and jealousy and greed and ambition and shame and rivalry and everything else. And, you know, those things have felled great people uh, since the beginning of time and will continue to do so. So the fact that, you know, Declan, uh, you know, drank too much, I think he's now in rehab, so maybe developed a substance abuse problem, or that Doug uh, publicly lashed out at people who had been his uh, friends in the, in the past. You know, those are very human things to do. And the, both of those guys have paid a pretty heavy price for it. But I, I don't know. I mean, I guess maybe just because I'm, I'm in this world, I'm less surprised by it. But I, I think that at the end of the day, if you succeed, and they really did succeed, then the press is going to look for any schadenfreude or any example of, of you failing in any way. They both gave the press very easy targets and, and lost their jobs as a result. Um, but that's to me, that's just a very human basic story. Wow, you sound so forgiving and 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 big hearted about it, Bradley. I'm, I'm really surprised. OK, now, in order to get your full and undivided attention, we're going to move to your favorite subject, um, which is the uh, the uh, the hot dog eating contest in Coney Island. Now, have you ever been to see it live, by the way? Um, I've not seen the hot dog eating live contest. Um, Bob Greenlee, who has been a guest on this podcast 
uh, before. Um, I went with him to the western suburbs of Chicago where he competed in a pizza eating contest. Bob is around 6'5", 270, something like that. Um, big guy, played played Division One football. Um, Bob played Division One football? Yeah. yeah. Wow, where? Yeah. Uh, doesn't really count. I think he was a starter. You know, for all four years, um, and, and I think it was pretty good. It's Bob, Bob, who's not who is not prone to exaggeration, says that he probably could have played like semi professionally, like in Europe. Um, so you know, good good enough to be at the fringes of your professional sport, not good enough to play it. You know, at okay. the end. but what about competitive eating? Where is he on that? Is he on the fringes of that too? No, he- he's terrible. That was the oh, thing. Really? We thought he's so big. And he ate that pizza. He was eating faster than everyone else there. But Sonia Thomas, the Black Widow, who's you know five to a hundred pounds, just very calmly, she was she was positioned right next to Bob, you know, just sat there, just seemed like she was just chewing her pizza, taking her time. And when it was all said and done, Bob had made it through about one pie, and, and she'd made it through at least two. Um, and yeah, she made it through one it. pie. Yeah, about one pie. Wait, I mean, you've probably eaten an entire pizza before. Yeah, but it's in ten minutes. I could easily eat a, a, a pizza pie in 10 minutes. All right. Well, let's do this. So Joey Chestnut, who who's <laughs> yet again set the world record for uh, competitive eating um, with 76 hot dogs consumed. Uh, in 10 minutes. Watched live in 10 minutes, just, just like I did. Although there was a lot of technical glitches, so we, we missed the last few minutes of it. Oh, wait. You did watch it? Of course I watched it. But, you know, I, the, the problem was ESPN's feed was – they blame some vendor or something like that. But how you many know, members of your family watch it with you? Lyle and Harper came in for part of it. Um, <laughs> so but Lyle, Lyle was into it, you know. Um, so not not bad. You know, we had like maybe of the three of us that are currently in the household, we had like two and a half people participating. So you know, look, I think that's common for competitive eating, just in the same way that it ranks as the most popular sport um, in the U.S. and and in, in most Western countries. Uh, and generates the most revenue, the most attention, the most everything. Um, you know, generates <laughs> most people in our household watching the Nathan's contest. Um, but 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 let's look at Joey Chestnuts because he has more than fifty major league eating records. So it's really not just he's not just a hot dog guy. I think he gets pigeonholed a lot as like Mister Hot Dog. Right. But he ate seven point six one pounds of chicken wings in twelve minutes. He ate fifty five glazed donuts in eight minutes. One hundred and forty one hard boiled eggs in eight minutes. 118 jalapeno poppers in 10 minutes, 23 Philly cheesesteak sandwiches in 10 minutes, 13.7 pork <laughs> ribs in 12 minutes, 28 pounds of poutine in 10 minutes, 390 shrimp wontons in eight minutes, and 121 Twinkies in six minutes. So, so these things sound impressive in the in the aggregate, but they actually get more impressive um, when when you break them down. So, so for example. He had 121 Twinkies in six minutes. So that comes out to about 20 Twinkies a minute. So about every three seconds, he had uh, another Twinkie. So, like, I could see how you could eat one or two Twinkies uh, in in three seconds. Um, If you did that uh, 21, you know, uh, however many times or 121 times in a row um, in a six-minute span, that's pretty remarkable, right? Um, Does he tend to vomit? Like, like, right after. Well, they're called reversal of fortunes in, in the industry, as, as you may know. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no, he he is not a vomiter. Um, usually, if you do experience a reversal of fortune during the actual competition, 
you are eliminated. Right. No, I would assume so. But I, you, you, you could go throw up afterwards. Although, you know, there's like the trophy and all the paparazzi. So it takes a while from when you finish a competition to when you can really get to a bathroom in private and, and, and relieve yourself of all the food that you just ate. So no, I, I think he's just an incredible athlete. He's the Muhammad Ali or Michael Jordan or Babe Ruth or Tom Brady or Serena Williams uh, of his profession, of his sport. Wow. I like you. You actually speak of it with like a, a, not just interest, but kind of awe. Like, like it's like a, it's like a meaningful thing to you. Well, you know what it is? Because like I can't hit a 95 mile an hour fastball. I can't hit it once. I can't hit it a hundred times. I couldn't hit it a thousand times. It doesn't matter how many at bats I got. I wouldn't be able to do it. In fact, I would be terrified standing there. I bet a thousand times you might get a piece of one. Maybe purely randomly, but <laughs> but but not not by any design. Whereas, look, ha- have I ever eaten 121 Twinkies in six minutes? No, of course I don't have that level of talent and ability. Um, but you know, have I had? Have we all had three Twinkies in what felt like two minutes? Yeah, at some point in our lives we had, right? Or like wolf down four slices of pizza before you even knew what was going on. So you know, y- you can relate just a little bit to these guys. Because you can experience it in very, very, very small, short doses. Um, and I think as a result, the, the wonder and majesty of what they do um, in some ways is, is more pronounced than ever. Whereas, like, I, I can't relate to Mike Trout at all. Uh, I can appreciate watching him play baseball, but I would never think I can do what he does even once or twice. Well, here's what I'm definitely going to do. I'm going to send this podcast to Joey Chestnut, and then we got to get him on. Like, I, I don't think I, I, I don't think we can get him on this. I, mean, I think he, we can get him on. I think we can get him because because when you're talking true respect, like the like you're you're not like you're not even like having a sense of fun or like this is like this like completely bizarre human who does this disgusting thing. You're like this guy is a is a is a top level athlete who deserves our, you know, our 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 total admiration and, and respect. Yeah. Did you see his TED talk? It was amazing. He did not do a TED talk. <laughs> Not yet, but but maybe maybe we can help him. <laughs> See, um, is there anything else you want to mention just about Joey Chestnut? I mean, I, I appreciate those stats and everything, but is there other stats? His seventy six hot dogs and buns, twenty thousand five hundred twenty calories, nineteen hundred milligrams of cholesterol, over fifty thousand milligrams of sodium, and, and what that may say to you is. This is overindulgence at its worst. This is a, a market sign of the decline of Western civilization. It says to me, you know, true commitment, right? If you're willing to ingest 50,000 grams of milligrams of sodium in a 10-minute period, that's because you put your art and your sport and the thing that you love ahead of your health, ahead of your own basic needs. Um, you put it first. And I think that kind of dedication and passion and commitment um, is rare in, in any society. And I think when we see it, we should be appropriately respectful. I'm just going to do everything I can to get Joey Chestnut on the podcast. So, um, you know, stay tuned. Um, all right. We, we saved, I wouldn't say we necessarily the best for last, um, but we saved the, I guess, the true serious business for last, which is um, the, uh, the Biden administration's uh, uh, big plan to pass uh, their, their, I, it's not just infrastructure. I don't, what do you call it? The, so the infrastructure bill is one thing. The, the Republicans are sort of coming along. So what on the, the bridges and the roads and the, the, the sort of hard stuff, 
But the other stuff, the 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 college tuition stuff, and the the all the all the the sort of catalog of things that the that the left part of the party wants, that bill, um, what's happening there? You know, it's um, it, on one hand there is some progress in that we have seen uh, some level of, of Republican senators more than tens and more than you would need uh, to break the filibuster. Um, indicate support for an infrastructure bill that I think just ju- just under a trillion dollars in spending, um, and so you know maybe there's a path forward uh, there. But but overall, you know, it, it seems to me that you're in this basic problem where, and, and this is the Democrats' problem at the moment because they're in power. The Republicans have the same problem when they're in power, which is you've got multiple wings of the Democratic Party with very different priorities, very different ideologies. And they're all trying to accomplish what they need to get done in a limited set of legislative vehicles. Um, and as a result, you see people on the far left say, we can't pass infrastructure or we can't pass the American Families Plan unless we have you know, a, a lifetime child tax credit. We raise the capital gains rate to 43% or you know, whatever ideological goal the, the far left has. And then you see people in the middle saying, I just want to be able to build some new, you know, roads and bridges for my my district, or um, I want to be able to uh, un- unlock some of the, you know, potential we have in our, our district that that's caught up by a lack of sufficient infrastructure without having to double my constituents' taxes. Um, and so, what it ultimately says is, if you have two political parties. Uh, absent having a massive advantage where you can lose a bunch of your members and still pass your bills, uh, if you have a relatively narrow margin like the Democrats do right now in both the House and the Senate, um, it's basically a system for um, intransigence and and no results. Um, Ultimately, there are really three different, I would say, ideological movements happening in this country today. And if we split off parties by ideology as opposed to by, you know, everyone on one half is this and everyone on the other half is that, um, you'd get a lot more done, right? So you have socialists and those are the people on the left, the Sanders and AOCs and those are the Warrens of the world. And look, I believe that they believe it. I don't agree with much uh, of what they say, but I do think that those are views that they, they genuinely hold um, and they genuinely believe that that the bigger the government uh, the, the better off we are. Um, you have people on the opposite end of the spectrum and libertarians who don't believe in any form of government at all and want to have as little government as possible. Again, um, I don't really agree with that philosophy, but at the same time, I respect it as a legitimate point of view and the people who hold that, that, that they genuinely believe in it. And then you have everyone else, which really are, just, let's call them the balancers. It's, it's the people, uh, in, in the middle. And, um, they may have different points of view as to whether the capital gains tax should be 23%, 33%, or 43%, or have different views as to whether an infrastructure funding bill should be $800 billion or $1.2 trillion. But those are all degrees of difference, right? They basically believe in the notion that government takes money in for certain functions, money goes back out to pay for certain goods and services. Um, and they think that that's the way it should work. They don't think that the government should be as, as big and central as possible at all times, nor do they think that there shouldn't be government, um, which means they're already in agreement on kind of the, the hardest issue. But the problem is because they are both 
um, stuck within the relative wings of, of their political parties, the centrist wing of the Democratic Party and the more moderate wing uh, or even liberal on the Republican Party, um, they can't actually you know, get enough votes to, to pass anything meaningful. Imagine if instead all centrist Democrats and centrist Republicans were in the same party. Um, and they were running against each other in primaries and being held accountable uh, for what they could get done or what they did get done, as opposed to how morally pure they are uh, on both the far left or the far right. Um, all of a sudden, the incentives in American politics would shift, the inputs would shift, and it would be commonplace to get things done on infrastructure or climate change or health care or immigration or guns or education or anything else, because the political incentives being given to the elected officials is we want you to get things done, and we recognize that you will fight about measures of degree. Um, and so to me, that would be the best system we could have. Um, I don't think we're there right now, but I think the more acrimony you see within the Democratic Party uh, between socialists and moderates and the more you see within the Republican Party between uh, the far right and moderates, uh, the more likely we are to eventually get there. Who do you think, which party do you think does a better job of standing up to the extremists do the, do the Democrats do it better? The Republicans do it better? Or where are we? Is one? You know, I mean, Mitch McConnell certainly didn't do a good job of it at all. I mean, Donald Trump was the extremist for four years, and the Republicans did a terrible job uh, keeping him in check, right? So they're not particularly good at it. Um, at the same time, if you take the amount of votes that super progressive candidates get um, and the amount of mind share that they should have compared to the amount of political power that, that they actually do have, it's also disproportionate, right? Um, because, you know, progressives are very good at dominating certain forms of media, of dominating Twitter and other forms of social, of dominating uh, blogs, of, of dominating the New York Times. And as a result, they have disproportionately more power than they really should based on the number of people in the party who actually support their uh, their views because people are afraid of being criticized uh, on Twitter or in the Times or whatever it is. And that since the nature of criticism today is not just so-and-so disagrees with me on how we should solve immigration or guns, but so-and-so disagrees with me and therefore they're an evil, terrible human being in every way, um, people are really afraid to be attacked like that. And as a result, they pay a lot of deference to extremists on both sides of their parties um, simply because they're, they're too afraid to do otherwise. Look, I've, I've been outspoken uh, on more moderate issues in the last six months, especially on the mayoral race in New York City. And I've gotten the living shit kicked out of me by the far left, uh, both online and, and in some traditional print media. So and it's not fun. So you have to be willing to incur uh, those costs uh, if you're willing to stand down uh, the extremists in your party or you have to not be in that party. And it doesn't work when there's only two parties. But if you actually left each party to its own ideological, logical conclusion um, and then form something in the middle, uh, you could change all the incentives to get things done. Now, I know. You know, one of the critical answers to this is, is uh, in your in your view, is is mobile voting, and we've talked about that many times, and we will talk about it many more times. Um, but let me propose a a, a, a crazier idea. Um, what do you think would happen if we were able to, like, basically have like a media blackout for a certain amount of time, where where there was no Twitter, there was no uh, cable news, um, and uh, and and you took away the sort of stage for politics. Do you think that would how do you think that would work? Is that the problem? I guess that's the question is how much of is the performative aspect of yeah. politics on the media? I mean, the performative aspect has always been there. The human nature of the need to, you know, get validation and affirmation from the act of holding office has always been there. 
Um, and I think what has changed is technology took all of those bad instincts and bad personality traits um, and just put them on, you know, steroids would actually be an understatement here, right? So um, so I, I, I think that fundamentally uh, it would probably be better if we didn't have social media and didn't have the internet and didn't have all of the ways of communications that we have right now because I think politics was at the very least – uh, a little less divisive. Um, at the same time, you know, norms have shifted over the last 50, 60 years in positive ways too, right? There's far more equality than there used to be, um, at least in terms when it comes to rights, if, if not economic equality. Um, there's far more democracy globally than there used to be. There's far more literacy. There's far lower infant mortality rates. Um, you know, the world from a, a statistical standpoint is the best it's ever been by a lot, even though it feels probably worse than it has in a, in a very long time, if not ever. So, um, you know, the internet and technology in general has, has corrupted certain processes and made them even worse. Um, but it's also had a really good impact on, on others. So it's hard to judge these things in real time because you tend to notice all the things going wrong and it's hard to appreciate kind of the accumulation of statistics ultimately adjusting in, in the right direction. Um, but, but I'm not sure that we will look back at this period in time as, as one of uh, utter debacle and collapse. I want to just close with one question just because I, I can't get Joey Chestnut out of my mind and, and the, the, the way you were talking about him. What... In, in what way does Joey Chestnut's example or his, his, his excellence, does it inspire you in terms of your own work or your own life or anything? Like, does it, does it have some kind of pragmatic, practical um, contribution to you, to you, the way you go about well, life? I mean, I, I like to think that I was a reasonably driven person, but before I ever heard of the great Joey Chestnut, and one day when he, he fades from the scene, um, hopefully I will remain driven. Um, but look, this guy has won, I think, what, 15 out of the last 16 Nathan's Hot Dog Contests, only the only upset that one year by Matt Stoney. And otherwise, you know, uh, there's a level of, of greatness that he sustains over a period of time. And while I can't aspire to that type of greatness, um, you know, it, it is a question of when you do have certain successes in, in your career, not to ever rest on your laurels, not to accept them as good, good enough. Um, and keep pushing yourself harder and harder to do new things and things that are more difficult and higher, you know, less likely to occur, bigger ambitions, bigger goals. And some of those fail. I just had that happen with the end the campaign recently. Um, but you keep pushing. And, and I think Joey Chestnut is an excellent example of that. Until next week, Bradley. Here you go. Thanks for coming on. 